Would you like to accelerate your career and reach your full potential in just minutes a day? Welcome to the LeadX Show with New York Times bestselling author and Inc. 500 entrepreneur, Kevin Cruz. What can we learn as entrepreneurs or leaders from Amazon Prime? Hello everyone, I'm Kevin Cruz. Welcome to the LeadX Show, where we help you to stand out and to get ahead. I hope you'll remember to follow LeadX Life on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, any social media channel that you can think of so that you can get more from us throughout your day. And check out our upcoming free live webinars and training events over at leadx.org.org. Today in the show, you're gonna hear from the person who coined the term, the membership economy. We talk about sleep as a key to productivity. I always say sleep is a weapon. Why everyone should turn their customers into members and how to identify your super users or as leaders, who are our super employees. But first, we have today's one minute career tip. For two decades, I was a bad boss. The people who worked for me probably wouldn't say that. I think most of them liked me a lot. I was popular, friendly, transparent, empowering, supportive. So what was the problem? The problem was that I was non-confrontational. I didn't give tough feedback. I wouldn't resolve conflict or come up with solutions to problems. I'd let them linger. Why? Because I had a need to be liked by everyone. Now, I didn't realize it at the time. <laughs> now, it's okay to want to be liked. The problem is when you need to be liked or need to be liked by everyone. So my need to have everyone like me was of course coming from my own needs for external validation. It's why so many high achievers actually have low self-worth. You know, we're always trying to get a feeling of worthiness by having the outside world tell us that we are worthy. The problem with that of course is, there's a phrase, to compare is to despair because there's always someone richer than you or with a cooler sports car or has more awards or better abs, <laughs> whatever your metric is. My team, they didn't need me to be a friend. They had enough friends. They needed a leader. They needed a coach, someone who could give them tough feedback, tough love so that they could improve. They could get better. That's how they were going to have a better career today. My self-worth is tied up in other things like acting in accordance with my values, with having the right people like me, mainly my kids. My self-worth is tied up with making an impact on the world or on others. So today, be friendly, be helpful, but do the tough job of a coach. Be friendly, but unattached to whether you are actually friends. Strive to be likable, not liked. Our guest today is the founder of Peninsula Strategies, a management consulting firm, and she originally coined the term, the membership economy. She's the author of The Membership Economy, Find Your Super Users, Master the Forever Transaction, and Build Recurring Revenue, a book that's been named a top five marketing book of the year by Inc.com. Our guest is Robbie Kelman Baxter. Robbie, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Kevin. Now, I'm looking forward to chatting about your new book, but I always start by asking the same first question. Now, I want you to tell us a story 
about a time when you failed. Maybe it's early in your career, maybe it's more recently, but we want to know what you learned from it also so that we can selfishly learn from your mistakes. Well, so <laughs> failure is something that's happened a lot of times in my in my career. Um, and I want to, you know, the, the one I want to share is uh, actually a little while ago when I was working for Goldman Sachs and I found myself crying in the bathroom. We were working on a deal that everybody thought was, was very important and it, and it probably was. And we had been in the office round the clock. It was our third day. We'd been going home to change clothes, to take a shower, and then coming back. And my important, important job was to keep all of the pages of the presentation in order as people pulled pages to go change them and then bring them back and put them back in the deck, which is a very important job, holding all the papers. I'm already getting nervous, Robbie. I see where this story's going. <laughs> <laughs> and I dropped the papers. Oh. And then I tried to put them back in order, and I got two of them out of order. And my manager came to me and she said, you know, Robbie, these are out of order. And I said, I know. Well, I dropped them. There were so many and they were coming so fast. I was trying to put them in order. And she said, it seems like you're getting sloppy. Hmm. It seems like you're tired and you're not totally here. And I said, well, I am tired and I'm, I'm not totally here because we've been here so long. And she said, well, you know, and I thought she was going to say something like people had said to me in the past, like, well, you know, we're so sorry that we've kept you up so late and, you know, it's probably our fault as much as your fault. And she said, well, you know, this might not be for you because it seems like you lack the mental toughness wow. to really push through in an important situation. And so anyway, you know, flash forward to me crying in the bathroom. And <laughs> <laughs> what I learned, I mean, there were a bunch of things I learned. One of them was that probably investment banking was not the career for me. But another thing that I learned was that for me, sleep really matters. And that I do need that sleep to be rejuvenated. I think for me, the most important thing was that a little bit of planning could have prevented us from being up in the middle of the night. And that, you know, when I had the opportunity to manage people, I took it as part of my responsibility to manage their time and to help them, you know, give them the warning of what was coming down the pike so that we didn't find ourselves in this kind of a situation because it was so stressful. And, you know, I'm sure there are people, many people who can do it well, but for me, and I think maybe for other people as well, having time to plan ahead and, and budget your time results in a, in a better product. So much good stuff in this story, Ravi. I, it made me remember uh, one uh, friend and mentor early on. Yeah, I was in my 20s and was pulling the all-nighters and all the crazy stuff. And he said uh, at one point, he says, Kevin, the occasional all-nighter, that's heroic. He says, the routine all-nighter, he says, that's poor planning. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, if it happens every now and then, all right, everybody, you know, has those those moments. But when it becomes sort of an expected thing, then there, there's something there's something wrong. And, and Robbie, the other thing, I'm glad you hit it, is – that sleep is important. And I think, thankfully, um, like with the work of Ariana Huffington and others, more and more people are realizing like sleep is a performance weapon. It's a tool. You know, it, you are not as sharp as you think you are when you're skipping out on sleep, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and people, you know, you, you brought up um, Ariana Huffington's, you know, research on sleep. And, you know, we know like our my kids now, they... Um, they don't have to go to, they're in high school and school doesn't start until after nine o'clock because the school districts have recognized that the kids don't perform. I want my teacher, I want my superintendent to talk to your superintendent because <laughs> 
I am waking up at 6 a.m. to help get my teenage daughter off to school at 6.30 a.m. And she's, she's a zombie. She's asleep. Yeah, yeah. They're just not learning as well. But but there's still this this culture sometimes of, of staying up all night and like you said, being heroic. And occasionally it is heroic. But for for most of us, most of the time, you know, taking care of your health relates directly to the the products that you're able to to produce. And I know I've known a lot of like investment bankers and, and stuff over the years. And it seems like now it's been probably 10 or more years since I've been involved in that that group. But I mean it that did seem like an industry trend along with the the consultant consulting industry but but I've heard that at least on like the McKinsey's and stuff that they're trying to change that they're trying to now a lot of people will laugh at this but they're trying to <laughs> monitor and make sure people are only working like 60 to 65 hours a week you know instead of the 80 to 100s i mean have you heard that too is it changing or not so much yeah, I know it's changing in the consulting world. And I there's a woman, a young woman I mentor who's a banker now. And she says, you know, that she doesn't usually work past 11, which <laughs> which might sound crazy. But, you know, 11 to 7 still gives you eight hours of sleep. You know, if you, if you right. zip right home and go right to bed, maybe it's not quite eight hours. Right. So it does it does seem like it's trending better. But there's still, I think, this culture of, you know, toughness. And this idea that mental toughness is equated with the ability to work around the clock. Yeah. And I try to approach, you know, I've done a lot of uh, research and some writing on on time and productivity. And I try to remind people, like, like I'm not trying to judge, you know, what's right for, for, for other people. Like, if there's someone out there where their number one value is their investment banking work or their paycheck, okay, you know, who's to judge? That's the number one value. So if they work from 7 to 11 and sleep – Great. But I, I more often I meet people who after five or 10 years say, holy crap, what did I just do with the last decade of my life? And now the other values around marriage or children or health, you know, were never taken care of. And so that's the danger. I just encourage people to slow down, reflect on your real values and are your minutes aligning to those priorities? Yeah, absolutely. And, and if you find a boss who has those same priorities as yours or who believes in working smart, you know, that's a good start to hit yourself too. Yeah, yeah. Now, you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, one of your your career experiences and I'm always fascinated by career arcs. I'm sort of a junkie on uh, the hero's journey, this archetype that like every movie basically follows. And I think we <laughs> all have, we're all sort of living our own you know, hero's journey. And we, we, it's not, a, it's not a straight path, you know, so we excel and we fall back or we take some time off or we go in. And as I was doing research for this interview, you know, I couldn't help but notice on, on uh, LinkedIn, like, again, you, you worked inside banking and, and consulting and marketing, but then, you know, these days you're a, a successful consultant, author, speaker. And, and <laughs> I chuckled, you <laughs> even include on your LinkedIn that you started with an internship at Mrs. Fields cookies, no less. <laughs> so give us the highlights. Like, how do you, you know, what's your own career arc been and what are some of the keys, you know, the big, big things that happen to lead you to what you're doing today? Yeah, I forgot that was there. <laughs> yeah. So that was a great job because we got, um, we got lots of free cookies, but I was actually doing real estate development there. We were looking for new, <laughs> new stores and building algorithms for store locations, which was really my first taste of a true business job. Yeah. And I loved it. After college, I could, I studied poetry in college and knew I wanted to go into business, but my parents had said, you know, if you get a good liberal arts education, you can do anything you want with that. 
so I took them at their word and I studied poetry. And then um, I looked at investment banking and consulting, but I went into um, urban government because I have a bleeding heart, I guess you'd say, and uh, worked in real estate development there and then realized I wasn't learning any transferable skills. I was learning a tremendous amount about New York City real estate and New York City politics, which would not transfer. <laughs> right. And that, I hadn't thought of that as being an important thing to consider in a career. But if you're going to want to move, you want to have a job that you can take with you or where you can get another job when you get there. So I went into consulting. Um, I worked at Booz Allen for two years, which invested tremendously. You know, for whatever you want to say about consulting firms, you learn a tremendous amount about business and you get great training and professional development. Um, so it served me incredibly well. Went back to business school, dabbled in investment banking, which as I mentioned was not for me, uh, <laughs> even though even though the work was incredibly interesting and the people were brilliant, but this was not for me. And then I, um, I was out here, I went to Stanford for business school because I did feel like I needed a little, you know, real solid business training. Uh, so I, I went to business school and then worked for five years in tech in product marketing, uh, got laid off while I was on maternity leave uh, with my second child and said, you know, I'm going to work for myself because uh, it was just, you know, being at the at the whims of a, of a manager for me personally was not worth the trade off. Yeah, I hear you on that. <laughs> <laughs> we are of the same tribe. So, yeah, so I did that. I had two small kids and then three kids. And I, you know, at the beginning of the consulting, I just said, I just have to make enough money to, to you know, meet my share of the, the mortgage and the, the family obligations. And, you know, as the kids got older, I focused more and more on subscription models, membership models, business strategy, innovation. And that's what, you know, kind of led me here to writing my book and to being, as you said, an author, writer, speaker, which is kind of a dream. It's a great journey you've been on. And and I don't know, you know, how much was luck and how much was, was foresight. But of course, like the membership economy, which you've coined that term, I mean, it's been and is hot and so important to business innovation, business models, certainly the startup community. And I mentioned it in the intro, but let me, you know, mention it again. Your brand new book, The Membership Economy, Find Your Super Users, Master the Forever Transaction, and Build Recurring Revenue. So, uh, you know, we have we have listeners in 148 different countries from all levels. Wow. Break it down. Like, what's the big idea of your book, The Membership Economy? The big idea of The Membership Economy is that there is a massive shift happening in virtually every industry as organizations look for new ways to build long-term relationships with the people they serve. And it's about access over ownership. It's about relationships, uh, known relationships over anonymous transactions. It's about uh, recurring revenue as opposed to single big lump payments. And it's about community, the people you serve connecting, not just with the organization, but with one another under your umbrella. And when you use those different levers, you can create totally new ways of engaging with your customers. So give us an example. Give us like one or two companies out there that you think are participating and driving the membership economy. Okay. Um, Amazon, LinkedIn, even American Express. So those are three you know, different examples but what they share is a focus on the long-term relationship. So you look at Amazon, um, you know, probably many of your, your listeners use uh, Amazon Prime, are members yep. of Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime is a way of 
bringing people under the Amazon umbrella and changing the behavior of consumers so that it's the first place you go and it becomes your habit. So let, let me let me dive into that one, Robbie, because I think that's definitely something we can all relate to. Now, I could, as a consumer, if I wanted to, I could go on to Amazon.com and I could just log in as a new user, buy a book and log off and go away. And there's, I'm sure, some people that do that. And that's just like one transaction at a time. And that's that's really what all businesses were doing uh, a couple of decades ago, right? But Prime became important because that's now I'm I'm a member of, of Amazon and I get some benefits. So why is this so important to them? To Amazon? Yes, yes. Well, because as a member, we make, well, first of all, they get revenue just from the, the Prime membership, but that they spend that on the, on the free shipping. But what it does for them is it changes our habits as consumers. So we go there first. We buy, you know, almost everything there, increase, you know, increasing amounts of stuff, which allows them, number one, to get a bigger share of our wallet. Number two, to learn a tremendous amount about our preferences and how we buy. So they have great information, which is power. And then the third thing that people don't always think about is that it's kind of a Trojan horse for Amazon because once we're using them as you know part of our daily routine and they become a habit, when they introduce new products to us as part of the Amazon Prime membership, like storage, video, music, you know the whole Kindle and um, you know digital book world, it changes our behavior in one industry after another, and they win. You know, music, I get through Amazon. Video, I get through Amazon. Um, I store all of my work documents with Amazon, my photos with Amazon. And so they're actually building a deeper and wider relationship with us and also creating a moat between us and any other competitor that wants to get between us. Yeah, and great uh, points there. And again, I'm, I'm a real happy Amazon customer and I even use their Amazon Fresh grocery deliveries. And oh, wow. <laughs> I think for anyone, any of the entrepreneurs, business people out there or those just interested in these models, you know, one of the things you said that's so important is you know, if, if you want to drive revenue, you have to find new customers or sell more stuff to your existing customers. And with Amazon, once I became a Prime member, it's real easy for them to just keep adding on. Now it's groceries. Now it's the Echo. They just, everything's there already, you know, coming into me. And there would be some amount of, um, uh, they call it a barrier to exit. Now in a consumer thing like, like Amazon, I don't think it's very big, but if I were to cancel my prime membership and try to, you know, go somewhere else, I mean, I would lose a lot of advantages. So it's, I'm incentivized to just stay with them. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a true forever transaction and, you know, switching costs aren't, aren't super high, but um, changing your behavior is hard. Right. Because yeah. now, you know, you probably have your, your shopping lists there. You probably are, you know, you know how to use Echo. You've learned the language to, to speak to Alexa and it makes you stop looking for alternatives. And this is the really mm. important thing about the membership economy is that once I take off my consumer hat and put on my member hat and go to the next item on my list, I stop, you know, I cross that one off my list. Okay. Amazon handles, you know, all of my product needs, all of my music needs, whatever, and now I'm going to go work on the next thing that I have to get done. And with my member hat on, I am no longer looking for alternatives. Okay, you just changed my whole like view. Like this really hit me, uh, Robbie, because you're right. It's like if I've got my customer hat on, 
I'm looking for a better deal. I'm open to, you know, new offers, whatever that is. But we are so time starved. We we are, you know, we're in an attention economy as well. (laughs) We're like attention's everything. So I don't want to have to think about a new place to, you know, buy books or rent videos or, you know, buy the groceries. Once I'm, I've got that solution, I'm going to spend that time and energy, you know, thinking about something else. Yeah, exactly. And to the, to the extent that, that a company can solve a problem for you forever. Um, it was true with gym memberships. Um, it's true with, with LinkedIn as, as being your, your place to connect with professional relationships. Once a company does that, you know, you stop looking elsewhere. And that is a powerful powerful advantage. And you also brought up a really important point around, um, you know, you can, you can grow by acquiring new customers or by selling more or having a deeper relationship with the people you already serve. And that second one, retention and engagement and deepening of relationship is way more profitable Mm. because acquisition costs can be high and you often acquire kind of just like when, if you went fishing with a big net, you sometimes acquire the wrong people. And then they leave. So you've spent all the money to bring them in and then they're not profitable customers and they, they realize they're not a good fit and they leave. Whereas the ones you already have are probably your best customers. So providing more services for them is you know, going to be way more valuable than trying to attract that next new person. And with these advantages, um, what do you see in terms of valuations for companies that uh, have a, a, a subscriber business model versus those that don't? It's many multiples, um, <laughs> you know, four to four to seven X uh, what it is for transactional businesses. So, you know, a funny thing in, in my world is that companies come to me now and say, we need to be a subscription business <laughs> and they've never been one before. And I say, why, you know, why, why do you want to do that? And they say, well, cause we want to get a better valuation. And I say, well, what does it mean for your customer? And they're like, well, I, I don't know. I haven't really thought about that. <laughs> I'm going to say guilty as charged because <laughs> in now this is the late 90s before this whole software as a service, the SaaS model even was called that, uh, you know, my uh, corporate training, which was a service business, was acquired by a company called Conexa. They're now IBM Conexa. And um, we went and raised, you know, $35 million of venture capital and, and uh, with the plan to <laughs> convert our software transactional business into a subscriber business. And, and ultimately we were successful, but it was for valuation. And for, again, I know th- there's not, uh, it's not the majority, but for LeadX family, if you've got a business out there, if you're an entrepreneur, I mean, it's good to think about this when you start out. I mean, hopefully you're doing it for the right reasons, as, as Robbie suggested, in terms of getting close to your, to your members and having members instead of customers. But you will 5x to 10x the value of your company if it's a subscriber company. Uh, so, I mean, there's really good reasons to do it. And in fact, Robbie, just yesterday I interviewed the CEO of a, of a company called Ping Identity out of Denver. Uh, founder and CEO, and um, they have just over a hundred million dollars in annual revenue, and he just sold the company for six hundred million dollars. Wow! So six x revenue, roughly. <laughs> really, uh, really high revenue. Yeah, very nice. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that it's like I love subscription models and SaaS businesses. The great thing about SaaS businesses for the companies that buy from them 
is that you get all the benefits of membership. You get you get access, not ownership, not, no burdens of ownership. Um, you get to benefit from the learnings from you know your peer companies. So you know the the, the product keeps improving. You don't have to make a big cash outlay at the beginning. You have the opportunity to leave if you ever want to. So there is a lot of benefit. But I just wish that organizations would think about what is it that we're really doing for the customer? And are we consistent across all of the parts of our organization in the way we serve them? Mm, right. And that ties into your your valuation because that does lead to more customers staying longer and and ultimately a higher valuation. Yeah, it can't just be a membership model on the contract terms. I mean, it really is a mindset uh, and a relationship with your members, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's a mindset. I love that you use that word. It's a mindset within the organization to say, how are we going to take care of our members? How are we going to think long-term about them? You know, if I have a subscription to something, I'm not thinking about, what well, do I need to upgrade? Do I need to buy something else? Do I need to add something on? I'm counting on you to anticipate my needs and adjust. So I would guess that at your, at your software company, your SaaS company, you were constantly thinking about what new features, how do we improve, how do we make this better, and how do we do it in a way that doesn't interfere with our customers' day-to-day routine? Absolutely. And in fact, a term, you know, I like to use a lot is, is co-creation. I mean, we went, we literally then were creating the next version of everything based on the customer, the best customer request. And we, we actually had like sort of a customer council that was guiding so that you really are in a true partnership. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And those, those super users, those people that are your best customers that go beyond just being, um, you know, good customers and actually give back to the organization with feedback, with advice to other organizations, referrals, those are really the people that you you want to get close to because they can really, like you said, co-create and help your organization to thrive. And I think, you know, this intellectually or conceptually, this idea applies to anyone that has customers. So I say, like, look, even if you're uh, maybe you're managing the internal legal department at a big company. Your customers are the people that are asking you to review contracts or, or whatever. You have internal customers. And even those are not all created equal. I think you still have super users, you know, whether it's by the amount of work they're giving you and sustaining your team or the preferred kind of work. As you said, you can kind of attract back to spend the time with your best internal customers and asking co-create, how can we do this better? How can we save time? What's coming down the pike? How can we serve you better? It's the, it's the same approach, even if your customers are internal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because as long as the people you serve have alternatives, which they definitely do inside of companies, right? If you don't like your lawyers in your company, you can go and find a, right. you know, <laughs> find an outside counsel and say, hey, our inside team isn't that good. If you're an employer, your employees can find another place to work if they don't feel like the promise that you're making to them is good enough. Absolutely. So anytime that people have alternatives, there's an opportunity to build a long-term formal relationship thinking of, of membership and how you would make these people really feel like they belong and what your, what your forever promise is to them. And Robbie, before we go, I got one more question. Like I, I really liked in the back of your book, it's very applied as well. Sort of, you have a section that says, Hey, if you're just getting started, so you've got a small business or mid-sized company and you want to begin to work, you know, with your super users and to build a membership base, like how would you begin? What are some starting steps? 
the first thing that I would do is I would get really clear on what is the promise you're making to the people you want to serve. So what problem are you solving for, you know, hopefully forever? What opportunity are you helping them to realize? So let's say that you want to start a gym and you would say, well, the forever promise is I'm promising them health, right? I'm promising that they will be healthy. Then you say, well, what does that mean to them? And to use that as your guide point rather than I'm in the business of having uh, stationary bicycles and three classes a day. If you think about a manicure, right, a, a nail salon, which I'm, I'm sure you do all the time. <laughs> I've got two teenage girls. You might be surprised. <laughs> so people that go to nail salons, we don't go because we like going to nail salons. We go because we want our nails to look well-maintained and nice. So instead of thinking about it as, you know, I provide manicures, you say I help people's hands look polished, professional, attractive. So maybe it means that you pay a monthly fee there and you can go back as often as you want to get touch-ups, right? Yeah. Because that's really what I want. I don't want the manicure. I want the good nails. I don't want to go to the car wash. I want a clean car. When you change the way you think to focusing on the problem you're solving as opposed to focusing on the product you're creating or the service that you have a good process for delivering, you start to see all these new ways to layer in more value for your customers. And that really gives you that differentiation that gives you an advantage. Great starting point. Robbie, how can our listeners find out more about uh, you and your work? Uh, They can go to uh, peninsulastrategies.com. They can um, find me on Twitter at Robbie Bax or Membership Economy on Facebook. And we'll put all of those links in the show notes. And Leadex family, I'm always challenging you to get 1% better every single day. And here's your challenge for the day. Let's start today and just pause and think about who are your super users or who are your super team members and what is your promise to them? What are you promising them? Let's just do that mental exercise today. Robbie, thank you so much for coming on to the Leadex show. Oh, thanks for having me, Kevin. This was fun. Friends, before we go, remember, at LeadX, we're on a mission to give free leadership training and professional development to everyone, anywhere, at any time. Visit LeadX.org to check out our upcoming webinars and online training events and subscribe to our newsletter to be notified of new offerings. And please take one minute to go to leadx.org slash subscribe to subscribe and leave a rating on iTunes because we're at 227 reviews as of this moment and I need to get to 300. Just in the last week, we've had awesome five-star ratings from Garth, Trish Way, Die in AZ, TriGuru, Indigo Cole, Elsie Flores, and so many others. Please join them, leadx.org slash subscribe. Until next time, remember, your family, your team at work, your community, we all need you to lead with intent. How will you lead today?